0: Hi, folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. It's the isolation that destroys us. The solution is in community. Today on the podcast, we have Craig Stanlund. Not only does Craig have a great TED Talk out there and a new book to be published next year, but he is one of the very first ministries that we had at Progressive Prison Ministries. It's hard to believe that he first contacted me in 2013 after he was charged with fraud. He's been a good friend and colleague ever since and is a regular member of our online white-collar support group that meets on Monday evenings. Craig actually led the discussion on the very first episode of White Collar Week, where we had 16 of our support group members tell their stories. You can find a link to that episode in the show notes for this episode. So, we have Craig Stanland on White Collar Week. I hope you will join us. Hello, and welcome to White Collar Week, a podcast sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry serving the white-collar justice community. I'm Jeff Grant, co-founder and your host. I served almost 14 months in a federal prison for a white-collar crime I committed when I was a lawyer. So I know that it's the isolation that kills us, and the solution is in community. So let's get started. Hi, folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. We have a uh, very special guest on tonight, a long-term friend of mine already, um, Craig Stanlin. Craig was one of my very first ministries. when he got into trouble back in 2013. He came, um, he contacted me and he actually came to my house and we, uh, we spent some real time together and he has a fascinating story, a fascinating, fascinating story of recovery and reentry that we're going to talk about. Um, uh, Craig has a, a TED Talk out there that um, is a, definitely a must-see, and uh, the, uh, he'll be talking about it, I'm sure. And he's a book coming out next year, too, that he just went through a crowdfunding um, program for, and it got fully funded. I think what Craig said, he's got 103% funding. So uh, we're going to talk about all that and more. So uh, Craig, why don't you spend five minutes or so, and give everyone your background, and, um, and then we'll get into the conversation.
1: Absolutely. Jeff, thank you so much for having me on. And yeah, we did. We met in 2013. So I'll, I'll go back. I'll go back a year before that. I'll go back to 2012. In 2012, I had what many would say was it all. I had the beautiful, amazing wife. I owned several homes. I had the nice cars. I wore the best watches, ate at the best restaurants in Greenwich and Manhattan. I was living the life. The only problem was that my identity had become so inextricably tied to my things and my ability to buy those things that I really, I didn't know who I was. And I worked in technology and the technology that I was selling was becoming more and more of a commodity. So the margins on it were shrinking. So my paychecks were shrinking. So I've got this really bad equation of shrinking paychecks but a desire and a need to keep my identity going to fuel my identity to to fill that feeling of not being enough for my my beautiful wife uh, not being worthy of her of my job of my success of the homes of anything just that empty hollow feeling so that is that is on the rise my paychecks are on the decrease and an opportunity presented itself I had started at this technology company all the way at the bottom. And because of that, I knew how every single component of the company and our partner company, how they worked. I knew the intricacies. I knew the ins and outs. And here I am looking for something to solve this problem. And I start seeing this pattern that I'm picking up on. I start putting the pieces together. And I realized that I've got basically this this treasure map that I feel like I'm the only one who knows how to get to the treasure. So it was about in 2012, I made a choice. And that choice was to exploit this, this opportunity that I saw within our partner company's warranty policy for my financial gain. What's really interesting is when, when I did it, my, my crime, my fraud was a series of choices. And that first choice, you know, all started with hitting the enter button, clicking the mouse button and really just making that choice. And the first time I did it, my heart spoke up and it said, do not do this. This is not the way. And I ignored it. And I ignored that voice every single time. I made that choice. My fraud went on for just about 10 months. I probably made in excess of a thousand choices. And every single time I did that, every time I hit that enter button, every time I hit the mouse button, my heart told me not to do it. That all came to a screeching halt on October 1st, 2013. And that is when I had just started my new job. Our biggest competitor had wooed me away with a really nice uh, bump in base base salary, a nice commission package. I was two weeks into this job. I take the elevator up to the 37th floor of uh, Penn Plaza right next to Madison Square Garden. I start unpacking my things for the day. I put my cell phone down. I see that I missed a call. There's a voicemail. So I pick it up and I listen to it. And it, it was the following. Mr. Stanlon, this is Special Agent McTiernan with the FBI. We are at your residence and have a warrant for your arrest. You need to call us and come home immediately or we will issue a warrant with the federal marshals. And that is the day that my life completely and utterly changed. And it was a few months after that where my neighbor... I, I still am so grateful to him. He had found out about me in the local paper and he's a mutual friend of ours. And w- he's w- the one. W- right.
0: Wayne Wright, we can, we can call him out. We can give him a shout out. We can, we can
1: give him a shout out. Wayne Wright, I am so grateful to him, to you, Wayne. If you hear this, I am so grateful that you, that you took that leap and that you did that because you knew what a difficult position my wife and I were in and that, that Jeff could help. And that's Jeff, that's how we that's how we met was because of because of Wayne. And I'm I'm really so grateful for both of
0: you, really. But that is that's a little backstory. That's that's how it all began. So Craig, when I first met you and and your wife, when you came, you, you came, I guess we talked a couple of times on the phone, but you came to our house, and I I remember walking around the backyard with you. We did some laps and you were a mess. I mean you were you were, I would say of all the people I've worked with, you were in you were pretty close to the worst shape. So I'm 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 not pointing that out to to for any reason other than to say how startling it is, the difference between you then and you now. And to see you self-possessed and be able to tell that story and take ownership, and to and to hear you on our um, white collar support group every Monday night, Um, and you've become you know a respected leader. You've become someone who people turn to and who call um, when when we're not um, when we don't have our meeting. Who call during the week? So how do how do you react to that? I mean, like how how do you react to the fact that You're now a man of respect. Uh, Does that, how does that feel to you? It feels
1: very humbling. Honestly, it is something that I do not take for granted, something that I take extremely seriously and something I'm very proud of because you are right. When I came, I was an absolute mess you know, back to what I was saying that my heart was telling me not to, I knew what I was doing was wrong and I just kept doing it. And I thought I could get away with it. And and when that bottom fell out, I had no idea who the hell I was, loved my wife dearly. And I I was afraid, you know, I was so paranoid that I was going to lose her, that I destroyed everything. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was just such an utter, utter mess to now be in a position to To be able to to hopefully help somebody who feels right now how I once felt, that is, again, very humbling and something that I take really, really seriously. And I'm I'm blown away that I I, I can do that and, and and that I have the the opportunity to do that. I, I'm really, yeah. You know, I think you could probably hear it in my voice. It it sets me back a little bit. It really is something that I'm. It's hard to even describe. And I appreciate you bringing that up
0: and, and, and pointing that out. Uh, well, it's, it's so strange because, I, because I've met your, I've met your, your family, right? Um, it seemed to me that you had an ideal family in many ways. I mean, there was a little bit of, of, uh, of divorce in there, but you know, I've met, I've met both sides of, of, of your parents and your extended family it seems tight, you know? It seems like people who, who really love you and care about you. So, so wh- where, did the, where did the disconnect start, do you think? The
1: disconnect, if I was to really go back, and I've, t- I've tried, I've done, I've done so much of the inner work, and I really tried to find what I call, you know, Genesis. What was the, what was the, the, the silver bullet, if you will, that started all of this? And I think that it's almost impossible to tell what that is. But I think it's, it's a series of events of growing up. It was coming home with a 97 on a test and my father saying, what's wrong with you? You know, why did you miss those three points? Why didn't you get 100? So now, you know, a 97, which is a phenomenal score, is not good enough. Oh. And, you know, I believe the, and it was not his intention, but I believe that score is not good enough transfers to a kid into I'm not good enough. Yeah, sure. You know, and I think that's a very easy transition to make. And then the enough and worth are two sides of the same coin. So if I'm not enough, then I'm not worthy. And I think that is really one of the things that started the ball rolling. And another thing was I was always the shortest kid in class. You know, we would stand up, you know, stand according to height. I didn't have to think about it. I knew exactly where to go. It wasn't, <laughs> wasn't really you know, a contest. There was maybe one other kid, but
0: I knew that I was always at the end. I, 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 same for me, but I was at the other end. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's, it makes life easy in that regard. But,
1: <laughs> you know, I've got, I've got the, you know, the shortest kid. I was one of the brighter kids in class which when you're young is not really something, you know, that helps you. I had the bowl haircut. I had glasses, all of this to say that I was bullied, you know, quite a bit. Yeah. And, you know, it was, you know, there were times where there was a kid who would, he would throw my jacket in the garbage on the day on a daily basis.
0: Mm.
1: And, you know, the guy could absolutely kick the crap out of me. So there was nothing that I could do about it. Yeah. And I think that, That bullying, and I I don't ever want to point fingers or blame, but I think these are some components that led towards the not enough, not worthy. Now, all of a sudden, you know, we fast forward, and I'm making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and I can go out and I can buy a twelve thousand dollar Panerai. Well, now I'm now I'm somebody, and I think that was such a huge part of it. Is you know, here I was a nobody getting my my jacket thrown in the garbage. And now I am driving a nice BMW convertible. I'm eating, I'm a VIP at some of the best restaurants in Greenwich. You know, when I come in, it's hugs and kisses all around and the best table and, you know, all these things. So I'm somebody and that's, that's the identity that I grew into. And it was really, I think it was just making up for a lot of that crap from childhood.
0: I, I know how you feel because I, I was a VIP at the diner in Greenwich. So it was, yeah, I love that diner. It's it it a great diner. So, um, I mean, the reason I asked was, was not because I, I thought that in any way you were going to um, not accept a hundred percent responsibility for your behavior. Cause I know you and, and, and I've also seen you speak. Um, but part, some of the people who, are going to listen to this undoubtedly are going to be kind of in that transition period or may, you know maybe this is a cautionary tale here where where at least we can reach out to some people and say listen you, know, you just because you're feeling a certain way about yourself you're feeling mad rush of have, making some money early on doesn't mean that you have to make bad choices from there you know that and I, I think it's important to, uh, um, to point that out because you're a you're a power of example for a lot of people. Thank you, and I think that is to anybody
1: who is in that spot is is just to this is this is some what I'm about to say is something that helped me get through prison, and it is everything is temporary, and I believe that applies to the good and the bad, and I think for being in this in a wickedly successful position anything can happen and the bottom can fall out at any time so i think it's just being taking that step back being grateful for what you have and just taking a breath and and realizing that it can all go away not from anything that you do but there are you know uh, somebody at Google wakes up and has an itch to scratch in your field, and they either want to buy your company out, make your job obsolete, So you know, things out of your control in that nature. Yeah. So it's just having that gratitude in advance for what you have, but knowing that it's not who you are. And I think that is one of the, the key elements is that we are not our success, nor are we our failures. And I think that's such a huge thing to remember. And particularly on the successful side you know driving a ferrari driving a porsche whatever it may be you are not your ferrari and you are not your porsche you know it's but it, and it but it's so hard not to get those two mixed up
0: yeah especially when you as as you get caught up in in the in, in in the more of everything you know in the in the in the need to have more in order to in order to prove yourself there's never enough never there's enough. never there's
1: never enough you know i mean i think it's so when I first started making some money, you know, and bet you, I'm guessing a lot of people can relate to this, you know, what's one of the first milestones is hundred grand, you know, when you're first starting making out, you know, you want to hit that six figures. When I hit six figures, I'm going to be somebody and I'm going to be happy. Hit the six figures. It feels great for what? Five seconds? Maybe. <laughs> you made it right. Maybe I'm stretching it. Then it's, you know, then you round up, maybe it's 150, then it's 200, then it's 250, then it's let's get to a half a mil, and every single step is when I do this, then I'm going to be happy. Exactly. And and it's it's the line from my TED talk. You know, I was trying to fill a broken glass, but I was too blind to see that I never could. Mm-hmm. It it's just an impossibility. And another analogy I, I like to use is is running on a treadmill,
0: trying to catch the horizon. Wow. <laughs> never going to happen. Yeah, never gonna happen. So. Um... Now you are uh, you're being prosecuted, and um, you don't know if you're going to go to jail or not. As I recall, I, I'm, I, I think that it wasn't clear. And um, um, where was it? New Haven Courthouse is that is that where it was? It was New Haven, correct? Yeah, yeah I was I was I was at your sentencing, right? You were, yeah, you yeah. Were. And um, and I remember the the commentary about um about the restaurants and about the wine and and um it it didn't seem like things were going to go well once you were kind of cast as someone who was spending money that you had obtained illegally on 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 huge dinners and on huge uh, on big wine bills and things like that and um and then you were standing there in the, court, in the courthouse. And why do you just kind of explain what happened? Man,
1: that is, uh, yeah, I will. When, when they brought out the, so the FBI subpoenaed the restaurants that I used to go to. Yeah, and sure. you were there. They literally broke down. Mr. Stanley had the spaghetti bolognese, the polpo, ordered a bottle of Purple Angel wine. The judge made a joke about having a wine lesson from I mean. the bills. And I, I have a line in my book. They said, the judge made the joke and only one half of the courtroom laughed. You know, because you've got, you've got the prosecution on one side. It's like a wedding. You know, you've got the bride and groom on different sides of the aisle. Yeah. And one side of the aisle laughed at her joke. And I, I did at that point, I started thinking, this is, this is not going, this is not going well at all for me. Um, i I'm, I'm not feeling good about it. I had, I don't know if you remember, but I lost about 30 to 35 pounds out of here. You, you were thin. You were thin, Craig. I went down. So at sentencing, I was probably about 110, 111. I graduated wow. school at 115. Mm-hmm. When I reported to prison, I went in at 109. So, I mean, I had lost a tremendous amount of weight. My attorney told me to buy the ugliest, cheapest black shoes that I could find because it doesn't look good to go in wearing $700 shoes when you're accused of a financial crime, which I thought made really good sense at the time. But then I realized the judge couldn't see my shoes because of the table and the bench. And I was what a dumb idea this is. But I bring that up because I've lost all that weight. I'm really weak because of that. My My back was on fire. Those shoes were killing me. So I just physically feel like absolute crap. The judge is making the jokes, going through all these things. And I don't know if you remember, she, she drew when she pulled out the, the character letters that, uh, that, you know, you wrote and, and my family. She mm-hmm. was holding them and said, you know, these letters, they, they cast you as a good man. They cast you as a great man. I think that you're a little bit like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah, You hide, behind the, good. Yeah. You hide behind the good so that you can get away with the bad. And... In my heart, I go, She's right. And but it was a knife, a knife through my heart. And and when she went into her chambers to to contemplate my, my fate, that has to be one of the worst moments of a person's life, is because your entire mm-hmm. life is 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 being decided behind closed doors, completely out of your control. You have no idea what's going on. And she came out and she went through all the legalese. I mean, honestly, Jeff, I couldn't under, the words, I didn't get what she was saying. There was a lot of just legal mumbo jumbo. And the gavel came down. And I remember looking at my attorney and and saying, was I just sentenced to prison? And he tilted his head and he looked at me like a confused dog. And he goes, you just were sentenced to two years of federal prison and $834,000 of restitution. And three years of supervised release and it was just I, the only thing I, I remember saying was okay because it, it's just a, i didn't know what else to to do and that is just and that gavel coming down i'm sure you can attest to that too that is like uh it's a visceral sound that's a very mm-hmm. that's a very real sound that's a very mm-hmm. final sound but that that was just you know one of i think i think Anybody going through this process, I think we can all relate. There are so many bad days, the day of getting arrested, pleading, um, sentencing, reporting to prison. There's so many bad anniversaries, and that is definitely one of the most memorable ones.
0: Um, it, it's, to me, It's this. Is two, uh, two comments I think I want to make about that. The first is, is that you said that the judge is there deciding your whole life and one of the things we've learned is that the judge didn't decide our whole lives at all, right? right? So that's that that was that was the mo that w- what we felt at the moment. But the reality of it is that it was just there's the there's a change of course right there, and uh, and we'll talk about how that how that wound up saving your life. We'll talk. will we'll get into that. I promise. the The, the second thing is that. I know what that felt like for you because I had gone through it, but the the honor I felt being able to be there for you and your family, because, you know, everybody was like a deer in the headlights. The whole, your whole family was there. And, um, I remember what an honor it was just being able to show up for, uh, you know, another human, another soul, you know, just to be there. And, there was nothing I could do. It was just my presence, you know, just, just, just to be there. And, um, we've learned that how important that is, that, um, it it was, it was the first, one of the early signs I was learning about community, you know, about how important it is. And I can't stop your ice, your, your sense of isolation in that moment, but I can show up and, uh, what a gift that was. Thank you for that
1: thank you because it was a gift to me. Obviously we spoke at sentencing, but I I honestly believe that for some reason we didn't speak, but I just saw you Mm -hmm. that alone, that alone takes a bit of that isolation. And even if for some crazy reason, I couldn't speak to any of my family, just knowing that you and them were behind me, that makes all the, it, it, it just helps. Even if we hadn't spoken a word, the sense of community to have people, literally and figuratively behind you Yeah, you know it's just so it's true
0: so important you know
1: yeah the community is is
0: key so the um and the courts are reopening now so some of our, our group members are they're going to be sentenced um live again and they're asking us to show up and um of course we want to be there you know, so we're, everybody's gauging whether COVID is going to be a problem or not a problem, depending upon your, on your personal situation. And you're, you're, I think, I mean, I think it's important. I think it's just important, yeah. um,
1: regardless of what the outcome is, because we have no control over that. But just to know that you have somebody in your career, you know, is so, so important because it really is. It's, it's, even if you're surrounded by people, it's still the isolation it still feels like the, the spotlight of the world is on you yeah. particularly feel yeah. You know, I mean, it, it may sound silly to somebody who's not gone through, but that's, that's, that's what it feels like.
0: Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you're going to have to report to prison probably two months thereafter. And you were designated to Otisville, right? Mm-hmm. And, yep. and with your ex-wife, you were running a, uh, an antique business. Where were you living? Williamsburg? Um, so we still we still lived in Greenpoint Greenpoint, green no? It was yeah, so we
1: were living we were living in Stamford Connecticut and we were commuting down to her um her studio in Greenpoint in yeah. Brooklyn. Yeah. And and so we had 2 months to sh- it had started really well. But now all of a sudden we've got this thing. We've got to we've got to get this business off the ground and running cuz my income is gone and I'm going to be going for 2 years. so we have 2 months to get this business up and running and a success in in two months. And it was just, I mean, y- you know, trying to, trying to take care of two years' worth of stuff in two months is just so many balls in the air, so many things, so many things left unsaid, undone. You, you just do the best you can. It's just pure frantic at that point.
0: So tell me about... Um about reporting to Otisville. How did, uh, how, how did that happen? Who, who drove you up there? What, what was that like?
1: That was, that's another one of those anniversaries. Mm-hmm. And I actually just had that. It was um, August 13th is when I reported to, uh, to prison. My father and my stepmother picked my wife and I up at our condo in Connecticut. So my wife and I, we woke up shared some nice words, I said goodbye to our cat and dog, which was just, I mean, that alone was heartbreaking. Our dog, a couple of weeks prior, it was 16 pound Westie, and they found a tumor the size of a grapefruit in her. So she was given a very short amount of time to live. So as I was holding her and hogging her and crying and saying goodbye, I, I pretty much was guaranteed that was the last time I was ever going yeah. to You know, walking out of the house, I knew the government had a lien on it and that I couldn't afford it, I would never, I, I believed that I would never see our home ever again. Yeah. So, so they pick us up. My, my stepmother's name is Paul, Apollo is driving and we are going up, you know, we leave Connecticut, we enter New York and we start getting into Otisville's in the middle of nowhere. So we're starting to get more and more, you know, strip malls are replaced by woods. Yeah. And I, I there was awkward conversation in the car. I hadn't eaten all day. My wife was still trying to take care of me. And she had brought food with me. She made me eat half a banana because she's like, you do not know when you're going to eat when you get in there. That's she's like, true. S-. And it's very true. But I just, I was so sick to my stomach that I, I, all I could do was half a banana. And, you know, the awkward conversation. And I, I feel like we're really flying. And I, I look over, you know, I'm in the backseat and I look over my my stepmother's shoulder She's doing ninety miles an hour, and I, I in my in my head, I didn't say this out loud, but in my head, I was like, "Who races to prison?" (laughs) Like, oh, she's got this great BMW. She's got a five series BMW, and apparently a lead foot, and literally is doing ninety. And you know, we we pull up, and we follow signs for for the camp. We're going to (laughs) camp, and we pull up and. We didn't realize it at the time, but I now realize it was an inmate approached the car mm. and said, oh, you're in the wrong place. You need to go to the medium security facility, you know, to go out here, take a right, go up the hill a little bit further. And it was like, well, well, no, that's weird because it was supposed to report to the camp. So we pull up and it's just a medium security pr- prison, which is the barbed wire fences that are 30 feet tall, the guard towers, just the imposing, scary Horrible place that a medium security facility is, and my stepmother just turns. And she looks at me and she goes, "You're not going in there." But I don't have much choice in the matter. We find a parking spot, and this is actually kind of funny. Guard comes and taps on our window, and she's like, um, "Sorry, but you can't you can't park here." And my father is, "Well, you know, we're dropping off my son. He's reporting to the camp." And he goes, "No, I understand that. You're parked in the warden's spot." <laughs> So, <laughs> so we had to move. I said goodbye to my my father and Paul out in the parking lot, mm-hmm. and Kyle and I made the made the long walk into yeah. It's just much like a. It's very. It's just a very cold lobby with the linoleum floors and the yeah. fluorescent lights mm-hmm. and the guards behind. You know, basically sitting <clears throat> in a fishbowl, and it was like checking into a weird hotel. Stanland Craig, okay, have a seat. We'll be right with you. And Kyle and I, we sat, we held hands and we were crying and they, they came out and they said, Stanley, Craig, say your goodbyes, time to go. And we embraced and we kissed and I, I never forget, you know, I watched as she walked out the front door and I walked in the other door Yeah. and I knew, I knew Jeff at that moment, I was like, we are, we're walking into completely different lives. Yeah. Through those doors that we're walking through. And that was just that was that was and you know it was just so difficult. Yeah. And then it just it kind of went downhill from there. You know, I mean it just getting led through the catacombs of a medium security prison. Yeah. It was like being a ship in the Panama Canal, because it would go to one door. And I remember another funny thing, I remember we got to the first door the guard, you know, he reaches over and he goes, um, prisoner, prisoner move, unlock A1. And I looked around and I was like, well, I wonder where the prisoner is. Oh, <laughs> oh, it's me. <laughs> Damn, okay. That, you know, just reality kicking in. And we go through all the catacombs and we just go to a holding cell and the guard didn't say anything. The CEO didn't say anything. He opened it and I just knew that I had to enter. Second I crossed that threshold, he just slammed that door behind me. And then it's just one of those moments that it really hits home.
0: So um, I don't want to go through the whole experience of, uh, of your first day in R&D and all that stuff. But how long did it take you to acclimate? I mean, no matter what I was telling you or what anyone else was giving you information in, in advance, you know that pretty much within, from experience, you know, or you can attest that pretty much by three weeks in, you become an expert in wherever you are and all of that mental um, uh, anguish, all that all, all that terror about what to do and how to do it and, will I, get, and will, will I get thrown in the hole and all of that stuff, three weeks later, you're like an expert and people have taken you under their wing and, and you're... And, in your case, you were probably playing softball or whatever you were doing, but actually I know that, but the, but is it accurate that, that it took a maybe two, three weeks, maybe four weeks for you to become fully aware of what you needed to do and how you needed to do it in, in, in prison. And, all of the concern was really just not worthwhile. What a,
1: what a great way of saying it! And as soon as you were saying that, two weeks popped into mind. It was actually, I would say, it was it was two weeks where I felt really, really comfortable. And I will just briefly go back to that first day when I was when I was checking in uh, when when we pulled up and they told us we had to go to the medium facility. I looked at the sidewalk and there was this guy that was six three. 270 of solid muscle and he is petting a cat on the sidewalk and the cat has her belly exposed to him which means if a cat exposes its belly to you it means it trusts you yeah, so here is yeah. this massive guy and i can actually hear him through the car and he's talking like a child he's putting on the cute little voice he's like who's my little baby who's my and the second i saw that i said oh wow okay i that alone made me feel safe yeah that cat feels safe enough to be here then I feel safe, you know, and that, that immediately made me feel good. And two weeks in I did, I felt comfortable. I had my, my rhythm down, you know, I knew where to go, when to go, the counts, you know, things like that. And, and people do take you under their wing. You know, it is actually a very can be a very nice environment actually, because I think people know when you're coming in, what you're experiencing and there's a bit of empathy you know i was given a mentor when i came in mm-hmm. and he definitely helped me so much
0: well there's a community in there people don't really know what it's like in in a prison I mean, you were in a camp i was in a low but people don't really know that in some ways this is the first sense of family or community that people have had in a long long time after being isolated or being so scared and it's really not in there what people think what you what you see on tv or on oz or get prison break or whatever i mean pretty much it's boring right you just it's so boring did you guys have the saying it is days are slow
1: weeks are fast yeah. The, days, yeah the days took forever to go by but then all of a sudden it's friday just like now <laughs> yeah exactly just like in covid right <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> I mean, what a great, what a great parallel, actually. So
0: how long is it before, um, Kyla, um, lets you know that, um, that it's over between the two of you? It was about four months.
1: She let me know on December 22nd.
0: She was visiting for the
1: holidays. She didn't want to actually tell me she didn't want to do it before Christmas. Um, but I knew. You know, I knew something was wrong, and I think that she would. She had made her mind up anyway, but I think I had manifested in a sense. It was just mm-hmm. the sort of Damocles hanging over my head. Mm-hmm. I saw something in her eyes, and I just I pushed and pushed and pushed until she just said, "I'm leaving you." And that was that's really when mm-hmm. that's really when things started to get really bad for me.
0: So wh- why don't you describe? Um, The 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 lowest moment that you had and how you got there because I know that it got very dark for you. It got
1: very very dark,
0: and that that was
1: it was it was it was bad before she told me that. And I'll tell you a brief story of something that added to how bad it was when I had gotten there and I realized that I was safe. I was probably in for about two months and I was sitting at one of the picnic tables, and you know, rap music's playing from the gym. Guys are playing handball, and it's. I just kind of get into this this daze, and I'll tell you, it was like a direct message from the universe, like a direct download. It was one of the most crystal clear, beautiful moments of my life where I understood what's important, and that's love, family, friends, connection, gratitude, joy, all these things that can that come from within that don't cost a cent, and I, I I understood it and. Not a religious guy whatsoever, but I guess in our worst moments, we all tend to look to somebody, and I'll never forget I looked up. and I said, "Thank you, thank you, thank you. I won't eff it up this time." And then I hear the rap music again again, and I hear the, the handball hitting the, the wall, and it snaps me back out of it, and I realize I'm in prison. And I had already started a little bit of the suicide ideation, and I said, "I just was given the secret to life, and I'm going to die before I have a chance to actually live it." And I tell that story because it just, it added to the shame that all of those things don't cost anything and were available to me my entire life. And I just threw them away. So now when Kyla tells me that she is leaving me, I've got that gift that I felt like I squandered. And I think that the greatest gift of being alive and being a human on this planet is to love and to be loved. And I lied to Kyla and broke that sacred trust. And my shame told me that I destroyed love. I now understand that you cannot destroy love. But at that time, I believed I destroyed the greatest gift that we have being alive. So add that to the download that I got from the universe. Add that to the fact that I ignored the voice that told me not to do it thousands of times where that voice, it disappeared and I could feel my heart close off and clench up, and it was done. And I had, started, I had started meditating in prison. I always wanted to. I always made the excuse I didn't have time. You know, busy corporate guy, I don't have time for that BS, you know? But prison, we all know you've got plenty of time. That's for sure. That's for sure. That's for sure. So I started meditating, and it going well for a while. And then there's a, there's a saying called the monkey mind, and the monkey presents pictures and images to us, you know, and and until that one image that really sticks and grabs a hold and we start, you know, ruminating and thinking about it. But the monkey showed me what my own suicide would look like. Mm. And it was so vivid and so real. I was in one of the basements of one of the homes that I owned and I walk in and I sit on this chair and I don't know where this pistol was hidden, but I pull out a pistol and I put it in my mouth. And Jeff, I tell you, I can still, you know, telling you the story right now. Oh, in this vision, I was also wearing a, a black hood over my head. Mm. Don't really know why the monkey did that, but a part of me thinks that it was um, pure shame that it's going to even look at myself, even in this vision. Yeah. To this day, when I, put that, when I put that pistol in my mouth, I can feel the cold steel of the barrel and I can taste that linen. And I don't take long. I don't take long to pull the trigger, and I can feel the bullet go through my brain, through the back of my skull. And I, I'm just I'm picturing this as a third party watching this scene play out. So the monkey it played that vision, you know, once or twice, right? And I would wave it off, and it started playing it again, and again, and again, and it played that vision. What felt like every second of every day for four months straight. And it got to the point when I was going to sleep, where I was I I cried I cried twice in prison, but nobody nobody ever knew because I was like I'm not going to be that guy. Uh, And I thought that our dog was dying when I got the phone call that dog was dying, and when Kyla told me that she was leaving me. But I would I would hold hold the tears in every single night, and I would pray and say, "Please kill me in my sleep. Please kill me in my sleep." please make it stop. I can't take this anymore. It was driving me insane. And every single morning I was crushed when I, when I would wake up and see the light of a new day. Uh, That was, that's when I started planning on how I was going to kill myself. And that, that
0: was my bottom. You know, one thing I've never told you is that uh, a, a lot of people talk to me about um, their feelings of uh, suicidal ideations i mean if if it turns out to be uh something present you know i'm a mandated reporter you know i'll i'll i'll, I'll uh, we'll we'll call the police or we'll call you know we'll get them help if they need help right away, but usually it's not that usually it's more of a conversation, and they tell me that they've been feeling suicidal and i uh, then uh, I'll say to them so how much time have you spent on Google looking up ways to kill yourself? And they like stopped it in their tracks. Like I said, yeah, I, I did that too. Like that's what people do. They, they, they Google it. And it's just, it's, it's, it's startling that, that to actually be in a place with someone else who's had these feelings and, and the, and the, I'm talking about visceral, talk about, Yeah, I've actually Googled it, and um, it's just talking about these things helps. Just brings everyone into into the moment. It brings people into reality, you know. Brings people into the into
1: reality, and it also lets them know that they're not alone. Yeah, you know, it's that to get to the point of thinking of killing yourself. That is pure shame. That Mm -hmm. is just pure shame, self-loathing, self-hatred. And at that point, you could be surrounded physically by a thousand people and you are the only person in the world. And then somebody says something like that, that they can connect with and realize that they're not alone. That's a, that's a holy crap moment. You yeah. so just, whoa, I, I'm not alone in this. You did that too. And just, oh, it, it, it breaks a pattern. And it's,
0: it's great that you do that. Yeah. yeah. So. Um- Tell me about um, coming, getting out of prison, coming home. Um, um, you're, you're, you're. I know that you went through this uh, this metamorphosis. You know that you were, you became someone who was um, optimistic. You know that that wanted to, wanted to be a healer. So how did that happen?
1: Well, I'll tell the story of how. And this ties in what stopped that vision from, from yeah. happening. Yeah. That, was, that was my, I get an email from my best friend of 30 years, Sean, who just says, hey man, can I come for a visit? Mm-hmm. And you know what it's like to receive a visit in prison. It's, it's extremely stressful, mm-hmm. but it's also a joy to have that contact yeah. with the world. And Sean is this guy, man, 30, year, 30 years of friendship. I can tell him anything. And you also know, and for anybody listening who may not know, I couldn't talk to anybody in prison about this. I couldn't mention it on the phone. I couldn't mention it in email. I had to bottle it all up because you mentioned suicide in prison. You get locked in solitary. Right. And the uh, idea of isolation scared the crap out of me. So I bottled it all up. Now Sean's coming and visits aren't monitored. Mm-hmm. I can tell Sean what's going on. And so yeah. I'm so prepared to tell him, to let him know everything that's going on, to get this burden off of me. And we sit down and before I could say a word, Sean starts to speak and his life is a complete mess. You know, he's getting a divorce, he's got money issues, he's got work issues, and he, he was really sad. He was, there was a sadness in his, in his voice and in his eyes that I just I don't ever remember in 30 plus years of friendship ever seeing. And it was at that moment that I realized I had value and that I had worth as a human being. I wasn't my things. You know, I wasn't my job. I wasn't my ability to purchase those things. Sean came to see me. His brother lived a couple doors down. who He's got a great relationship with. He could have gone to his brother. Drove two hours to come to prison. Not the most fun place in the world to visit, you know? And he made that drive because he needed his friend and he needed me. That's the moment that my life, that's the second day that my life changed. And from there, I knew I had to give meaning to the suffering that I had caused Kyla and my family. I knew that I had given meaning to the suffering that I'd caused myself, but I still didn't feel worthy or enough of it at that point. So I don't like saying that fully, but I know it was in there a little bit, but I didn't feel worthy of doing it for myself at that point. But that's when I really threw myself into, why did I do this? Why did I make the choices that I made? what was going on internally. Why didn't I listen to my voice? Where did my voice go? Where did my heart go? Mm-hmm. How do I open my heart up again? And just went down I went down the deep inner work path. And you know, that eventually led me to wanting to be of service. I didn't know what giving meaning to the suffering meant at the time. I just knew I had to, I, I just knew that I couldn't allow all that suffering to be for naught. Yeah, I had to do something with it.
0: So, so what, what's the path for you out of prison, like over the first couple of years? How do you, how do you emerge? I mean, you're, you're a felon now. Um, there's a, a, you probably still think that there are, are, are limited places that you can work or limited places that you can go. You know, you're, you're still kind of in that trap probably. So um, wh- what does the path look like from, from there to over, say, the next five years or so?
1: I couldn't have been more lucky that I got a job while I was in prison. One of my friends was owners. Uh, one of my friends owned a gym. The guy I was away with, his friend owned a gym in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Mm. And a guard let me sit in on their visit, which is you know, a no no, but he said, You got five minutes. So I had an interview in the prison visiting room. And the guy said, Email me when you get out, and true to his word, email him. And so I got a job, which got me out of the halfway house, which is great. But I'm working yeah. at the front desk of a gym, making twelve bucks an hour, seven figures in debt. Didn't care. I was happy to be out. So I was I was lucky that I didn't have to deal with that job thing right off right yeah. off the bat. What
0: what halfway house did you go to Brooklyn? Brooklyn. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I was in I was in the Brooklyn halfway house. Mm-hmm. And you know, there was just that shame, just in the beginning, just consumed by shame and just trying to fit in and thinking that every single person that came into the gym and the people that I worked with and the trainers, they all knew, you know, in my mind, they all knew, they all knew that I had this big scarlet letter that I'm a convicted felon. And it was just, it took me a long time before I started sharing my story. People really had to earn my story in the beginning, mostly because I was just so consumed by shame. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I was, again, so fortunate. I had one person who judged me poorly, Mm -hmm. and I realized she's just an asshole and judges everybody poorly. (laughs) I saw her do this with everybody, regardless of who they were. She was just not a nice human being. And I said, oh, wow, okay, that actually makes me feel better. Everybody else was really kind and really empathetic and really listened and was supportive. But it's still trying to navigate my way through all these things and realizing that I can't work at the gym forever, and I have I have a skill set i'm I'm very good at what I did. I, you know I was number one, two or three in the company all the time, even though I didn't feel worthy of it. I was always in the top three so I did I did for a while try to get back into I, there's a court order barring me from the technology industry, yeah, but I could I could do other sales and so I would go through. Job interviews and that feeling of just you know what about this gap on your resume? You know, waiting for that question. Sure, waiting for just the other shoe to drop. And I, I volunteered the information to people even if they didn't ask because I had this massive fear that I could be at the job for a year and I could be loving it and I could be embraced by everybody and then all of a sudden my boss says, "Craig, could you come into my office?" And every single time, you know that they do that, I I have a heart attack because maybe he Googled me and found out. So I proactively would bring it up. And that
0: happens. We know a lot of people that's happened to. Yeah, it's a very real thing.
1: And I didn't want to do that. And part of my my rebuilding and part of who I wanted to become, you know, and my values is integrity. Mm -hmm. And it was, I've got to tell these people, you know, everything right off the bat. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have also heard this. Well, I don't have a problem with it, but let me check with HR. HR, HR says, you know, no, right off, right off the bat. And, you know, I was trying larger corporations at first. And I said, let me try, let me try startups. Yeah. Startups would be a little bit looser and, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. And I went through four, four interviews at this one startup, pretty cool company. And I, I, th- I think it was, I mean, it was going really well that they brought me back four times. Yeah. And I ended up telling them on the fourth interview and they actually looked really disappointed. And they said, we would have never known. And I think that is what, you know, precluded me from getting that job. And I realized I just, I'm going to be staying at the gym for a while. You no. know, And I, said, I had to, I had to, I had to accept that. And I made the best of it. And I, Started making more money at the gym because the the owner saw that I was an asset. I eventually got promoted to the general manager to mm-hmm. make a livable salary to live, you know, in Brooklyn and to, to live a decent lifestyle. But in the beginning, man, it's tough. It's a transition. It's a
0: journey. Don't don't you have to be a billionaire to live in Brooklyn these days? Uh, maybe maybe, I'm, it's, it's, maybe it's a different Brooklyn. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> I, I am
1: so lucky with where I live. I am so fortunate with where I live. It's unbelievable. It, it's, when I tell people the rent that I pay, they look
0: at me and they go, what? So thankfully, I do not have to be a billionaire to live in my apartment. So so w- one of the things that's striking that, that I would note because I, I've known you so long is that you've become a very good speaker. You know, you've become... Self-possessed. You don't wander. You're very intentional. You know what you're going to say, and 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 you stay on it. Uh, Incredibly, there's no ums or kindas or. And so, how did you become such a good speaker? I'm there. There is your TED talk that we will refer people to. But how is it that you became such a good speaker? And how did I develop the art of asking you questions that I already know the answer to? The
1: when I went after Sean's visit and I started rebuilding my life in prison, I examined the fact that I made fear-based choices that landed me in prison. My intuition told me that I needed to write down all of my fears and I needed to execute them one by one. My number one fear, public speaking. Mm -hmm. It was so easy and obvious to point that out. And I I made a commitment to execute that fear. I get out of I get out of prison. I'm in the halfway house. Got access to the computers, and I Google public speaking courses, classes. You know, trying different things, and it keeps leading me to Toastmasters. And for some reason, I don't like that answer. I I I refuse to accept this answer of Toastmasters. I don't know why. Oh, actually, no. I'll, I'm not going to BS. I know why. That was fear. That was my own fear kicking yeah. in. Going, you know, wait. He's really going to try to execute this fear. Let's hold him back. Yeah. And say not the place for us, but I, I committed to doing it. And I went to that first Toastmasters meeting and I committed to speak at that first meeting. I went up when they asked for a volunteer, spoke for a whopping 26 seconds. Don't even remember what I said. I'd have no idea if I made it a lick of sense, but I never forget. I sat down in my chair and you know, I had a round of applause. Everybody's really nice in that organization. And I had faced my biggest fear and I did not die and I actually enjoyed it and I committed to going back and what I, what I did was I threw myself into it. I said if I'm going to execute this fear, I've got to throw myself fully into it and I'll rewind real quick back when I was in prison and I decided to execute the fear, I knew that the way to execute that fear was to get on the biggest stage that I could imagine. And that was the TED stage. And so I made that commitment five years ago in prison to give a TED or a TEDx talk. And Toastmasters was going to be the, the path to get there. When I gave my icebreaker speech, every, every person in Toastmasters group gives an icebreaker. It's the very first one. And it's, as the name implies, it's, it's just you're, you're breaking the ice with the crowd. You can let them know about you in any which way that you want. And I led with, I led with the voicemail that the FBI agent left me that led to my arrest. That's how, that's how I introduced myself to my Toastmaster script. You should have seen the jaws on the floor people just going, oh my God, I started, I started crying during the middle of it. I mean, I opened completely up and that felt good. And that felt amazing. The, the round of applause that I got and people going, you just gave me a gift. You just, you gave me a gift to be vulnerable in my speeches. So I just threw myself into it. I ended up becoming the president of the Brooklyn premier Toastmasters club, competing in contests and winning contests and enjoying it and knowing that what I try to deliver in a speech, I try to add value and I try to inspire and I try to get people to think and to use my experience as a tool to help others. And that is what fuels me. And that is what led me to that TED stage and has created the speaker that I am today.
0: So in a weird way, COVID forces you out of the health club and into what you know is really the thing that you want to do is uh, speaking and coaching and, and, and being of service to people um, why don't you kind of describe this 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 world you're in right now? Because I, you were on um, recently on James Altshuler's. I don't know if I pronounce it right. Altshuler, right? Alt Altshuler. Altshuler. So that's a big podcast to be on. You just had a uh, a book go through Kickstarter and um, and uh, it got fully funded. So what's it like to be in your world now? You're how many years out of prison are you? 5 5 5. 5 5 years, yep. So you're 5 years out of prison now and all of a sudden things are they're they're coming together. You 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 have a a life to be proud of. Explain how this what your life is right now and how all this is how all this is working for you. It is the
1: culmination of five years of deep inner work has all come to fruition this year in delivering the TED talk in February. With the pandemic hitting, I launched my coaching business. I am, I gave myself the title. I'm a reinvention architect. So I help people rebuild and reinvent their lives. The book is ready to be published. Like you said, I did the Kickstarter. It everything has coalesced so nicely this year and these were all goals that i had set five years ago in prison and it was just knowing where i was going to point the car not knowing how i was going to get there Mm -hmm. just showing up every day for myself and doing that work and oftentimes thinking to myself what the hell am i doing this for this sucks this blows this isn't going anywhere this is stupid. I was dating a girl when I got right out of prison. She was like, "I don't know why you're doing all this stuff. Why don't you just start a business right now? You're smart enough to start a business." And I said, "It doesn't feel right. I, I'm not ready for it." And part of that was fear, but part of that was I need to go through a lot of stuff before I can actually. I need to walk the walk before I can coach and work with people. I need to have actually experienced everything so that I can work with somebody one-on-one and know that I've done everything extensively that I'm asking them to contemplate to do. So it's been, you know, honestly, Jeff, I gotta, I mean, it's been, it's been a hell of a journey. And this year, I mean, it feels strange to say even with the pandemic, it's been one of the best years of my life. Yeah, of course. Hands down has been one of the best years of my life. Mm -hmm. And, it, it, to think that I was begging to die, that I was wishing that something would kill me in my sleep and to be where I am now, where I would not change a thing, where I wouldn't go back and change a thing. I would, I would do it all over again to be where I am right now. I wouldn't give that up at all. To be, to be able to use the experience and the shame and use that as a tool to be of service to others is one of the most rewarding things I can imagine. And to, to do things that I enjoy doing, I enjoy speaking, I enjoy the act of writing. I think writing is one of the most beautiful, touching things that a person can do. It's not for everybody, but I, I love the ritual of sitting down and typing. It's beautiful to me. And I get to do that for a living.
0: Two, two comments. The first is, and I, I don't know that I ever made this connection before, um, because it, it took me five years to emerge, too, because I decided to go to seminary, which, which you know, which most people know who listen to this for sure. But I graduated in 2012, and that was five years, almost to the month. And it was the same thing, really. I, I, I. I what I didn't want to do was I didn't wanna, I didn't wanna ha- have to be in survival mode. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to be into something that was higher order, that was going to be, that was going to lead to a uh, be, uh, respect the trajectory that I had had before in my in, in my first life, but also kind of shoot for the stars. And why not? We only live once, right? So. Yep. So that was an amazing, it's, I, I never really made that connection before. So thank you for that. Um, and the second thing is, and this is something that I, that we've talked a lot, about a lot on the support group, um, it's a strange thing that we, uh, people who've been prosecuted or went to prison for white collar crimes, we were thrust into isolation and learning a lot of the lessons that are coming out of COVID. We've learned these lessons way ahead of the game. So it's so strange to now, not only to be of service to other people because we, it's kind of an embodied experience that we've had, but you know, in a weird way, we've been protected. We've, we, uh, you know, I don't, I I don't want to go too far with this, you know, but, but there's no question that we we've been you know we've been in quarant we've been quarantined for a long time, and so I don't know maybe it's maybe it's maybe it's just the way the universe works maybe it's the way God works in ways we don't really understand, but we're we're here we're 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 proof of something.
1: We're definitely proof of something, and I think that it's <laughs> I think it's also interesting for some people to feel the, the isolation that are not used to the isolation yeah. because of the pandemic. And I think, you know, a massive amount of empathy for them, but to understand what it is like to, to be isolated, not fun. We are tribal creatures. We want to be with people. We, we, we crave connection. We hunger for it. And to not be able to have that is really one of the hardest things that we can do. You know, I know, I know at the beginning of the pandemic, it was not, you know, my, my friends checking on me and they, you know, they would call and they would have the a little condescending, caring voice, but it's, how you doing? You okay? Everything all right? I was in federal prison. This is a breeze. And they all go, they're like, oh, right. This <laughs> like,
0: is it no offense? I said, I'm, I'm, I hope you're having an okay time with this, but this isn't prison. You're
1: yeah, going to be okay.
0: Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of an inside joke between all of us. Yeah. But, but the reality of it is, is that, um, is that at least, um, at least for me, prison was, um, uh, personal trauma, but to be in the midst of this massive community trauma is, is a, it's kind of a whole different experience. And those things, they, they, they relate, you know, they're, they, they dovetail, but, I don't, that's why I work with people, because I don't really have a, a clue on, on a systems level what this is all about. I mean, my experience and the thing I, I can offer people um, or families is, is um, the, the things I've learned from this deeply, deeply personal place, and, um, and, this, and the whole pandemic and the social unrest, it's just way too big it's way above my pay grade
1: way above mine as well i mean this is it's a global trauma yeah you know it really is a global trauma that is not just it's just not the virus itself it's going to be the economic fallout and oh, everything yeah, else right. is is we, we we have yet to see where all that's actually going to go
0: so craig um we're we're, we're, we're in closing now so wh- what i'm going to give you is an opportunity to. Um, Talk about what is the takeaway or a couple of takeaways you'd like people to remember this this podcast about, and then uh, and then give us all your contact information and how to find the TED Talk and how to find your website and all of that. So, uh, what, what what takeaways do you have for us?
1: I would start with, and I've said this on the call, but it's something that is very dear to my heart, and it is your past cannot define you without your consent. Mm. And it is something that comes up on the calls and something that is extremely difficult to deal with is our identity and the loss of identity that we, anybody who's gone through the system has experienced. And when we are trying to rebuild and reinvent and come out into the world and, and trying to figure out our place. It's very easy for society to label us and to say federally convicted felon. And while that is in fact a true statement, it is not who we are by any stretch. You know, to the same point, we're, you know, sons and daughters and nieces and nephews and uncles. And I'm a short guy. There's a lot of other things. That are included in that. We get to choose our identity and we get to choose what we allow in. And anyone who wants to judge us poorly, I know for a fact that that person who judges another in that way is judging themselves. There's something within us that is triggering something within them and is merely a reflection on their own perception of themselves, because we are so much more than just a felon. And I think that is one of the most important things that I would like to drive home. And in conjunction with that is the reason that a lot of us, I have, and I no longer, and I know some people still struggle with this, buy into that label. And the weight of our story is shame. And shame is an insidious disease that will eat us from the inside out unless we do something about it. We have to take responsibility for it. There's nobody else that really, that will. And we do that by having a community and by sharing our stories. Because shame wants to be alone. It wants to be in the dark. It wants us to think that we're alone. And the moment we start sharing our stories, Going back to what you said with somebody who's got the suicidal ideation, and so have you Googled it and and breaking that pattern, but also that shows that you've done it, that you know that is that's shining a light on your own personal shame of being in that spot, and it gives somebody an opportunity to to know that they're not alone. So we just have to continue to share our stories, to own our stories, because if our stories, if, if we're owned by our stories, our stories own our lives. We own our story, we own our lives, and we are responsible. We have autonomy, and we have agency, and we get to choose how we show up in this world. And those would be a couple of the key takeaways that I would love people to, to have is, and I'll say it again, your past cannot, your past cannot define you without your consent and share your stories to unwind that shame. It's just too important. And then in regards to where people can find me, my website, craigstanlund.com. And then I hang out a lot on Instagram, craig underscore And then my TED talk is how I learned my greatest worth in federal prison.
0: Craig, um, it's been really wonderful having you on tonight. Yeah, yeah. I, I see you every week. so it's a, so. it's th- But but in, in in this context, it's really beautiful because we, we get to hear you. And wh- one of the things on the White Collar Support Group that we have on Monday nights is that um, I know that whatever the topic is, last night's topic was religion and God. We've talked about acceptance. We've talked about surrender. We've talked about all kinds of things. I can always count on you to be bedrock in that conversation, you know, to and and that's important because not everybody is as uh as self-possessed as you are or has done the work. And and um sort of have you as an ally in that and a, and a friend and a colleague it's, it's just been a beautiful thing. So thank you for all of that and uh um and God bless you and thank you for being on tonight.
1: Thank you, Jeff. And I'm gonna take a moment to acknowledge you and for meeting with me seven years ago to get this ball rolling. I appreciate you tremendously. And then to have that Monday night call, to have that platform that we can go to and have these conversations, it's so damn important. So
0: I I appreciate you for doing it and for showing up the way that you do for all of us. So thank you. Well, you're welcome, Craig. I did, it took me 30 years of therapy to be able to say the word you're welcome. <laughs> so you're welcome. And thank you, Craig. And uh, I love you, man. And, uh,
1: um, thank you, Jeff. Thank you. See you next Monday night. Absolutely. Okay, bye.
0: Thank you for joining us on White Collar Week, sponsored by Progressive Prism Ministries. You can learn more about us on our website, prisonist.org. That's prisonist, like feminist. And please remember to rate, review, and share this podcast so that families suffering in silence can find us if they need us. See you next time.